fools rush in where angels fear to tread. That's a wonderful proverb. I'm sure you've heard it. It's a pretty popular proverb. It contains a good deal of truth and wisdom. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. The idea is that people regularly confront the most awesome mysteries without any sense of what they are up against. Right? We wade into these very deep waters with a sort of casual yawn, not quite aware of the gravity of the situation. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread means they're unprepared. And in their foolishness, they're unaware that they're unprepared. Unfortunately, the proverb is often true of us, of the people of God, as we gather for worship. We often rush in. We often come with unprepared hearts and minds with but the dimmest perception of who it is that we're meeting here. We come lacking reverence and awe. This is because we have no sense that the one we meet is a consuming fire. The thrice holy God before whom these fiery seraphs have to hide their faces, veil themselves. And yes, this God has become our friend in Jesus Christ made us his friends. But he is still the same God, the same Lord before whom the prophet Isaiah trembled in woe when he saw him. In our text this morning, which is Psalm 15, is meant to disabuse us of our presumption. That's why a psalm like this is in the Psalter. And as such, this is a wonderful short psalm to spend some time with on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning before we come into the Lord's house. We're prone to forget this. And we see here that Israel took its approach to God. It's coming near to His holy presence in Zion. They took that with utmost seriousness. Underneath the old covenant, rushing in where angels fear to tread meant being carried out dead. So this is no place for fools because it's holy ground. It is the same splendor and radiant glory of the God of Israel that meets you and I here in our prayers, in our praise, in the Word, in the sacraments. So I'm going to make three points on this psalm. The question, which is in verse 1, and then the character, and here we mean the character of the one who dwells in Zion, the character, which is in verses 2 through 5, and then the promise in verse 6. So there's a question, there's the type of person who responds and answers that question, and then there's this promise in verse 6. So first, the question. If you look at verse 1, Psalm 15, verse 1. 
This is the most important question a Christian can ask. There are other questions about who Jesus is and the like, but once you've answered those, this is the decisive question. O Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tents? Who may live on your holy mountain? You know, you can tell a lot about yourself by asking yourself, what questions am I asking? What are the questions that shape and drive my life? The psalmist understands that getting this question right, asking it first, and then answering it, is critical. So I want to note a couple things about this first verse. We're talking here about this need to sojourn or to dwell in God's holy tent on his holy hill. Now for Israel, this would include rightly approaching the tabernacle worship in the wilderness and later the temple worship set up in Jerusalem. And for us, for you and I in the New Covenant, this text is applicable especially to our approach to the public worship of God. It's about what type of person comes into the gathered assembly. But it's also about how we, who have come to Zion, stay there. Notice the text is about dwelling, remaining on God's holy hill. It's about living in the presence of God. As the chapel field motto has it, right? Corum Deo, living before the face of this God. And these words here, sojourn, dwell, they conjure up some important things in Israel's history. Israel had to ascend to get to worship in Jerusalem. They had to climb up to Jerusalem, to all the annual feasts, since Jerusalem was a city set on a hill. And so we're put on notice from the beginning of this text that this is a task that is going to require effort, struggle. The very first thing this text assumes and calls us to is to the resistance of the forces of spiritual gravity. To war against our own inertia, our own sloth, our own complacency, and our own dullness. Are they not our chief enemies? This is a call upward. A call against the tide and flow of life. Against our natural instincts. Against the river of the culture. You have to climb to get to Zion. Or in the words of the book of Hebrews we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift from it. Drifting is a grave spiritual danger. Francis Schaeffer used to tell the story about these two streams in Switzerland that ran side by side literally a foot or so or two feet or so apart for miles. But they gradually slightly diverged and they end up emptying in different oceans. 
Drifting is a grave spiritual danger because eventually, not right away, sometimes not even after a moderate period of time, but eventually we find ourselves lost. And when you've drifted, you don't even know why you're lost. You don't even know how you got there. You don't know how it happened. Pilgrims don't drift. Or they don't end up in Jerusalem. They end up in Cairo. Pilgrims don't drift. So sojourning and dwelling also tell us something else. They tell us that we're strangers. That we're aliens. Sojourners. We have no lasting city here. No matter how much you love your hometown, your home state, your home country, your home neighborhood, you have no lasting city here. We have no permanent peace. We have no place of spiritual achievement in which we can rest. Everything's moving, put it that way. And as Ecclesiastes says, everything's vapor, slipping away from you. Everything. Your being, your children, your marriage, your house, your assets, everything. Where is it moving to? The everlasting eternal city. Otherwise, it's very depressing. We have, no, we have no lasting city. That's good news. Because we're looking for the city which is to come. We dwell as nomads because we're looking for that city which has foundations. The Zion of God. And so it's a good diagnostic question for ourselves. For our own souls. What city are we looking for? What city? Or better yet, what city would an objective observer say we're looking for? Right? It's sad, but too often we're not looking. We're not yearning. We're not hoping for any city to come. We're simply trying to make life in the earthly city more manageable. I mean, after all, it's overwhelming sometimes, and you have to do that. Don't get me wrong. But the New Testament is clear. Christians are pilgrims. They're aliens. They're strangers. They have no lasting civilization. So we have to get these two qualities down into our bones. Two qualities. We are aliens and we are climbers. Nomads slogging uphill. There's no sense in portraying the Christian life as if it's lived on level ground. Or downhill. It's lived uphill. And we're not going to make much progress toward being the type of people this psalm calls us to be, lest we are aliens and climbers. Those are the kind of people that the question assumes are going to answer it. So that's the question. It's the decisive question. The second point is the character. Of the sojourner. Look at verse 2. He starts uh, with a summary of the type of person who can dwell in Zion. The one whose walk is blameless. Who does what's righteous. This of course doesn't mean perfect. Blameless doesn't mean perfect. It means having integrity. 
So the, the person, the man or woman in view here, repents of their sins and seeks to walk with honor before the Lord. He does what is right, especially when he's wrong. That's the crucial time to do what's right, when you're wrong. And that's always the highest goal for us. The person who dwells in Zion has high moral seriousness. They know that to be a human being is an awesome thing, a weighty matter. We must do what is right. And what I'd like to do here is look at this blameless walk under three subheadings, if you will. I'm still talking about the second main point, the character of the person, but I want to say three things about this character. The three things are pure speech and then clear-cut allegiances and then honorable dealing because that's what the text says the man or woman in view is like. So this person, first their their speech. Look at the second half of verse 2. It says, they speak the truth from their heart. Their inner being, they're faithful, they're trustworthy. What comes out of their lips is rooted in their hearts. Right? There's no deceit, there's no dissonance. And truthful speech in this context is restrained speech. Speech that's protective of others. Verse 3 says, his tongue utters no slander. Since the truth is in his heart, there cannot be any slander on his tongue. Slander is an utterly destructive thing. It's a reckless disregard for the truth. It's a failure of love. It refuses to put the best construction on the words and the actions and the motives of others. It's a ninth commandment violation. You shall not bear false witness. So we should treat one another's reputations, one another's good name, as we would want ours treated. This kind of restrained speech is rooted in the fear of him to whose hill we've come. After all, they're his creation. So unbridled and unrestrained tongues, they destroy churches. There are few things that destroy churches more than this. They wound those for whom Christ died. And James says they set your own life, the course of your own life, on fire. So this man does not slander. Not only that, the text goes on and says he does no wrong to a neighbor. And the last phrase in verse 3 again, deals with his speech. He casts no slur on others. Or in some versions, the text says he doesn't take up a reproach against his friend. He doesn't listen to reports and accusations against his brethren. He doesn't listen to them. This is not being naive. This is biblical loyalty. There's no need to receive a reproach against a friend. The person bringing it should be told clearly, you will not hear it. 
They should be told that according to Matthew 18, they should go in love and work it out with their brother and sister in Christ. If you want to dwell in Zion, you can't be someone who listens to reproaches against other people. So we have to acquire this reputation for guarding reputations, for refusing to take up reproaches. And you know, reproaches are very subtly presented. People are exquisitely good at justifying why they're talking to you about something they shouldn't be talking to you about. So we want to resolve to be the kinds of people and for this to be the kind of place where slander and gossip come to die. Almost nothing is more important for the health, the, the, the daily, if you will, lubrication, functioning of the body of Christ than this. So this is a man of pure speech, but also a man of clear-cut allegiances. Clear-cut allegiances. You see this in verse 4. This is a person who despises a vile person. That's very strong language, isn't it? (laughs) But it's not a call to be pompous or to be self-righteous. There's enough vileness in each of us to despise. But, and you know, to despise a vile person here does not mean to assail their dignity as a human being made in the image of God. It doesn't mean that either. But the world is full of vile people, and the text is saying vile people should not be honored. Right? I mean, vile people, evil men can be our friends, they can be our co workers, they can have many fine gifts. But we don't honor or esteem them and their evil. Right? The man in the text is wholly aligned with God. He's clear about his allegiances. And that honor is in view is made clear there at the end of verse 4. But he honors those who fear the Lord. So his alliances are clear. He knows the boundaries. He honors God. He honors those who fear God. He does not confer honor on vile men. <coughs> now this is not as easy as it appears. Right? We need to recognize and honor as brethren even those with, with whom we might disagree. Maybe we disagree vehemently. Maybe we don't even like them. Maybe they're an embarrassment to us. And we must not honor evil men, even if they have many traits that we like. Say I have a friend at work, and he has the same sense of humor that I do. He has the same political sensibilities. He likes the same music, even. He knows the difference between third-rate books and really good books. But he's a committed unbeliever. And he likes to ridicule some TV preacher who I also happen to think is a total moon bat. This is where we need to remember the covenant. 
We need to remember who has been sealed in the triune name in baptism and who has not been sealed. One is a brother who needs to be honored even if he's wacky and he needs correction. And the other can be an acquaintance, even a friend, but he cannot receive honor. You have a lot more in common with the zany Christian than you do with the folks that criticize them. The man in the text is clear about this. This guy is not blurred about where his allegiances are and where lines are drawn in life. He doesn't allow preferences or tastes or various personality traits to determine where his boundaries are. He has clear-cut allegiances. They're rooted in the covenant. He thinks clearly about this. This is a person of pure speech and clear-cut allegiances and finally, honorable dealings. In the middle of verse 4, he keeps his oath even when it hurts. All of his godly vows, whether they're in marriage or in the church, his membership vows, the vows he takes in public life, he doesn't change his mind when they become inconvenient. Even when it hurts him, he keeps his vows. This is the characteristic of a Zion dweller. Pilgrims cherish loyalty above all else. He doesn't lend money to the poor without, with interest, verse 5 says. In Israel, you couldn't charge interest to your brethren if they became poor. So the man handles his money in a way where he's not seeking to exploit anyone. He doesn't accept a bribe against the innocent. Right? The scripture tells us that a bribe blinds the eyes of those who receive them. It perverts justice. The man here is beyond being bought or seduced for the praise of men. He's a man of honorable dealings. And there are subtle ways in the internal politics of churches in which bribes can be offered. But it's, not, it's hardly ever an overt offer of cash. That doesn't mean there aren't people who don't jockey for position, who don't maneuver, who don't protect their turf, who don't seek to increase their leverage, and in so doing, to align you to be on their side. You have to be beyond bribery in any form. Finally, the third main point that we have the promise here on which the, the text ends. He who does these things will never be shaken, never be moved. What does that mean? It, it does not mean that you won't experience hardship or loss. In fact, seeking to be this kind of, of Zion dweller will undoubtedly mean shaking things up. Shaking everything that can be shaken, in fact, so that only the unshakable stuff remains. Psalm 15 is the path to stability. But the path to stability can be very rocky. But it ends with sojourning and dwelling with constancy in the presence of God who is the rock. God is not moved. God is not agitated. God does not twist in the wind like we do. He's the rock. 
He, he, he holds Zion unshaken in the midst of turmoil. If that God is at your right hand, then you too will be unshaken. Planted, planted as a tree. Now, it's critical in looking at this psalm, we saw this last week, to say that the answer to the question in verse 1 Who can dwell in Zion? Who can stand in God's holy hill? The answer to that question is nobody. It's only Jesus Christ who fully meets the test of this psalm. The text has to drive us there. He is the one who, because of his perfect obedience, has now ascended to Zion to the hill of God, and there abides forever. Jesus is the only one who's ever walked in full blamelessness, who's never sinned with his lips, whose clear-cut allegiances were never blurred, whose dealings were always and only honorable. He's the goal of this text. But here's the important thing. He's our forerunner. He goes into Zion first. But in him you follow behind. And so becoming this type of person is all by grace. It's all by grace in Jesus Christ. The text calls you nonetheless to these kinds of virtues. It does it by grace in Christ alone, but the text does call us to be this kind of man or woman. The fact that everything is of grace, all is of grace, does not mean nothing is required of us. That's actually not the logic of the gospel. The logic of the gospel is a strange logic. It goes like this. All is of grace, Everything is of grace. Therefore, everything is required from you. All is of grace. Therefore, everything is required by way of response. So, if you have been risen with Christ, then seek, exert yourself for the things which are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set, fix your affections on those things. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are already a dweller in Zion in Jesus Christ. This text calls you to be a dweller who remains, who abides, who has restrained speech, clear-cut allegiances, and honorable dealings. So striving is still called for, but it's striving in Christ. By His grace, we are to dwell in Zion before the great burning presence of our holy God. Amen.